Hello everyone. The podcast has been quiet whilst I had a Christmas break and got some finishing touches done on the book. The book has now come back from the proofreader and I will be checking and confirming his changes uh, after I finish recording this episode today. I had a quick uh, peep at his list of changes last night when they came in and one of them was that I need to add an accent above the E in souffle. Now I thought, when do I refer in my book to souffle? And I was baffled so I looked it up and yes, there it is. There is a reference in my book to brain souffle. So (laughs) I hope you're all looking forward to it. And uh, let me remind you that you can currently pre-order it on any book website. You might not think that pre-ordering is a big deal because, you know, with internet shopping these days, surely you just need to click the thing on the day of publication and it'll arrive the morning after. Well, yes, you're right, but pre-orders do mean a lot to the author. It shows the publisher and it shows booksellers and bookshops that, yes, there is uh, interest in this thing. So... If you would like to pre-order it, I would be very grateful. It's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. It's by me, Julie McDowell. And uh, (laughs) there is a reference to it in there somewhere to Brain Souffle, which uh, you will see on publication. will have a very careful accent above the E. So let's get to work. Um, a few days ago, uh, a lovely big padded envelope was delivered to the flat. I saw the delivery slip said that it had come from New Mexico. And so I started jumping about, getting really excited and calling David and Bomba to come and look at it. Because I've had a few of these delivered over the past few months. And they are from one of my patrons in America who has very kindly sent me US civil defence booklets, uh, manuals, uh, postcards, and here was another surprise delivery. So a big thank you to my patron John Lane for taking the time and trouble to send me these. So I thought that we would today examine one of the pieces of paper in the envelope. Now it contained lots of leaflets and manuals and um, even a civil defence armband and a a tiny Soviet KGB pin, so it was a great delivery, all hugely interesting stuff, and we will work our way through it all in the podcast, but for now, there was one thing which caught my eye instantly, and it was a small rectangular slip of paper, and yet it was instantly fascinating to me. So I've done some research on what the thing means, and I've brought you here an episode about this uh, flimsy slip of paper. This slip of paper, uh, creamy coloured with a bold black type, is called Form 809 and this particular one that I have here on my desk was printed in 1963. It was issued by the US Postal Service. Now, (laughs) don't switch off because forms, admin, bureaucracy, that's surely boring stuff, right? But Not when it's applied to our subjects, because then all these papers and plans and notes and memos, they all show themselves to be what I call the admin of Armageddon. And that has to be fascinating. So what exactly was Post Office Form 809? It was for something very, very simple, but at the same time, 
something utterly ludicrous. <laughs> so ludicrous, in fact, that it was ridiculed in Congress and in America's newspapers. When you move house, you need to inform about a million different people, of course. The, the doctor, the dentist, the council, the school, the bank. And even then, you can't guarantee that your records will have been updated or that you haven't missed out someone important. So, to make sure your post goes to your new address, it makes sense to also tell the post office themselves. Um, here in Britain, you would tell the Royal Mail. You would go online and fill out a short form with a forwarding address. It makes perfect sense. You say, here's my old address. As of this date, I will be at the new one. So for the next one month, three months, whatever you want, please slap a redirect notice on it. And so all the stuff from me which insists on heading to the old address will be automatically redirected to the new one. Okay, great, that makes perfect sense. And so in the 1950s, the US Post Office issued Form 809 for that same purpose. It was an official notification of change of address. So, who could argue with that? Why would that be ludicrous? Well, if you look closer at Form 809, you'll see that it was intended for use after nuclear war. An ordinary change of address can be dealt with by another form, but this one, Form 809, was, quote, official card for use only in civil defence emergency, and only is underlined in bold black text. The form asks you to give your pre-emergency address, and then your present address. And the reason this was ridiculed and mocked is because, well, one, the US Postal Service were surely being disingenuous or naive or just dangerously misleading in saying, yeah, sure, um, fill out this form and we can make sure that all your post-nuclear letters and magazines get sent to your new home. You might have been forced out of that home by terrible war, firestorm, destruction, but no worries, you'll, you'll soon be set up in another place, in some other lovely sunny suburb, and our postmen will be zooming around the neighbourhood, your children will be playing in the streets, and you will be out washing your car in the drive, and we will perhaps nod hello as we cheerfully deliver the mail to your post-emergency address. So this ridiculous form carries with it the dangerous pretense that life will go on as normal after nuclear war, and it will be so normal that you won't be a starving refugee staggering across a radioactive wasteland. No, you'll be settled in a new home. And indeed, you'll be so free of worries that you'll be able to go, hey, where's the post? Has he been yet? The unofficial motto of the US Postal Service is uh, it's quite poetic. Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. I actually learned about this through watching Seinfeld when um, there's an episode where George asks Newman, a postman, to get him a calzone each day because he's banned from the restaurant. 
But uh, Newman can't be bothered because it's raining outside and George <laughs> explodes with anger saying, but you're supposed to be a mailman, neither snow nor rain, it's right there. So the US post office takes pride in the fact, uh, or in the hope, that their guys will be out there battling the elements to make sure the mail gets through. Maybe there's a particular romance attached to the, the mail delivery in America because it can be tied to adventure and frontier spirit. I'm thinking of the famous Pony Express back in the 19th century where riders would use relay tactics to get letters across the country out to the Wild West. Jumping into the American newspaper archives, we can see some of the romance attached to the Pony Express, to the to the simple delivery of mail in, for example, a Missouri newspaper called the Weekly West. This story from 1860 describes the Pony Express in dramatic and breathless terms. It says that the third messenger from the, quote, firmly established and successful Pony Express will be due here tomorrow and will, without a doubt, be in on time and perhaps ahead as parties fully conversant with the enterprise in all its bearings know the facilities possessed by the company and the indomitable spirit and energy of its proprietors and are confident that the trip will be made from San Francisco to this point in seven days. This may seem improbable, perhaps impossible. And the article goes on to say, We have come to regard nothing as impossible. The article ends by praising the Roots superintendent, a man whom no danger can swerve, no difficulty daunt, Ben Ficklin, the Iron Man of the Prairies. So if modern American postal workers in their boxy white vans are the descendants of the tough Pony Express riders, then wow, they have got a lot to live up to. Not least the expectation that they won't be deterred by bad weather. Remember the quote? Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Except sometimes conditions do deter the postal service. They are only human, after all. They can't be expected to deliver mail through floods and hurricanes and deadly blizzards. So why then? Why? Why would you expect your postman to be on his rounds after nuclear war? Why would you expect the Postal Service to spring back into action and be out there delivering mail after a nuclear holocaust? All the staff needed to man the Postal Service, to sort the mail and to deliver it, haven't they been at least mildly inconvenienced by the nuclear attack? Why are they all such sprightly sorts heading straight back into work? And how could they deliver your mail? Hasn't this nuclear war damaged America's roads and bridges and runways and rail network? And what about all that paper in the sorting office? All those envelopes and magazines and letters? Aren't they just a tiny bit flammable? Aren't they ash? Who is delivering it and how are they delivering it? 
<laughs> and what are they delivering? Well, never mind all that, never mind those distressing questions, because we have issued a form. Form 809. Give us your pre-emergency address, and then give us your current one, and think no more about it. Well, how ridiculous. This uh, civil defence plan, of which Form 809 was part, it was formed in the 1950s and then updated in the early 80s, upon which the civil defence managers of the Postal Service were called to speak to the House Post Office Subcommittee. They were mocked in the committee hearing and they were mocked in the press for insisting that they could carry on delivering the mail after nuclear war. But they stuck to their story, insisting it could be done. It seems that neither snow nor rain nor embarrassment could stop them. Of course, their civil defence planning wasn't just the printing of the 809 form. They also designated um, other headquarters across the country which could take over the running of the Postal Service if the main HQ in Washington, D.C. was destroyed. Memphis would be the alternative headquarters. But if Memphis got it, then control would move to San Bruno, California. There was also a plan to destroy all the mail if it was ever at risk of falling into enemy hands. I assume that would refer to a an actual Soviet invasion of American soil. And we don't want those damn commies reading our private letters. So if this desperate situation ever occurred, the postal workers were authorised by the Civil Defence Plan to destroy everything. But the plan took great care to assure Americans their mail would be destroyed unread. No one is going to sneak a peek at your love letter or pinch your birthday money from your card. Another feature of the Civil Defence Plan was to monitor mail which was from, or which had passed through, areas of radioactive contamination. So there we are, the US Postal Service Civil Defence Plan, which said they would keep going. As long as the citizens filled out their wee forms with a change of address, the postal workers would do the rest. So let's look closer at this form on my desk, Form 809, the Nuclear War Change of Address Form. It requires two addresses, your pre-emergency address and then your current one. Well, that alone is optimistic. Your present address? Who says you'll have one? Who says you won't be living in a refugee camp or huddled in the ruins somewhere. Although, to be fair, the form does perhaps give a slight nod to that situation by saying in small italics that if your present address is not definite, then simply write general delivery and then add your nearest post office, giving its state and its zip code. So that is maybe a hint that there might be a smidgen of upheaval in America following a nuclear war. We can also detect another small hint, maybe, at the foot of the form, which says, Important Notice. Here it says, Submit a new card promptly every time you change address. 
So is that maybe a recognition that people will be in a state of upheaval, will be moving regularly, constantly, whether voluntarily or under some kind of ordered evacuation? The form finishes by saying, no postage required. Now, that is quite standard, I suppose. That wouldn't catch my attention in any way if this was an ordinary form. But given what it's intended for, that might be a subtle way of saying, okay, look, lads, we don't expect you to rush about trying to buy stamps at this post-apocalyptic moment. So just send it on without, okay? So we can find hints, if we read between the lines, that on this form, all is perhaps not as it should be. It is a form intended for unusual times. But these uh, little hints still weren't enough to stop the US Postal Service for being mocked. We all know that the idea of toddling down to your local post office to fill out some forms after a nuclear war is quite silly. Although... To be fair, this is America and we know, or we can assume, that if there was a nuclear war, there could be large swathes of that country which would remain physically untouched by nuclear blast, fire or fallout. So if you lived in one of those little untouched areas, then sure, your post office could still be standing. And its neat little pile of 809 forms might still be there. But then... The post, of course, is a network. The safe and cheerful person in that untouched town will find his post office is useless if there is no one else in the country capable of writing to him or of delivering their correspondence to him. The post only works, it only means something, if we're all here and we're all writing and reading and delivering and sorting. So one wee guy, unscathed, doesn't matter. He needs other wee guys, other people. He needs a country behind him with a working infrastructure. And so, quite correctly, the Postal Service were ridiculed for claiming that they could continue to deliver the mail after nuclear attack. When the civil defence managers appeared at the committee meeting in Congress, Representative Edward Markey said to them, quote, What good would an emergency change of address do? There would be no city, no block, no street, no house. He went on to say, there wouldn't be many people left to read or write letters. The reply from Ralph Jussel, the civil defence manager for the post office, was simply, but if there are, they will get their mail. This uh, blind insistence that all would be well provoked some real anger. It was fraudulent and deceitful, said Rear Admiral Jean LaRoque, director of the Centre for Defence Information. He said, quote, I can assure you that while neither snow nor rain nor sleet nor gloom of night will stay the postal couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds, nuclear war will. And what did the newspapers make of these uh, pretensions to post-apocalyptic post? Going into the archives, we find some mockery in the Casper Star and Tribune from August 1982. 
Greg Bean, in his Around Wyoming article, said in sarcastic tones that the post office have assured us they will keep delivering the mail and that he's reassured by the little change of address forms and that if the bomb drops and, quote, he's still kicking but can't get to a post office, I'd like someone to note our change of address in advance. After the Holocaust, we'll be living in that ice cave back near the Deer Creek Range. You know, the one that's just a couple miles from the Bates Creek Road after you pass Shirley Basin? You can't miss it. The box will be in that crooked sagebrush right near the entrance. By the way, we wouldn't complain too much if you lost the gas bill on the way out. The newspaper The Monona Times asked a list of sarcastic questions about this in August 1982 concerning post after nuclear war. Will the mailman leave a little notice on your bomb shelter if your mailbox has been blown away? What if all the little plastic numbers are melted on your house? You know how the post office is about correct street addresses. And if even your car has melted and you can't get to the post office, how do you get stamps? Of course, there was a lot of uh, sarcastic humour used here to mock the postal service's ludicrous insistence that they would cope and carry on. But not everyone was laughing. Here is a more serious letter sent into the Tallahassee Democrats in January 1983. The whole scheme is a zany attempt to precondition citizens for this kind of warfare. This type of planning tends to make nuclear war more, not less, probable. Suppose you, if you survive the nuclear war envisaged by these planners, go to your post office and fill out a change of address form. What new address could you provide? You might put down hell on earth. Anywhere, USA. So this insistence that things will carry on, um, how do we interpret it? In Britain, we could always pin it on the Blitz. The Blitz spirit of carrying on with pride under enemy bombardment. We could also say, if it was Britain, well, um, plan X, Y and Z worked during the war, so why not try them out again? But in the 20th century, America was never... They never suffered an attack on their soil, apart from, of course, Pearl Harbour. So we can't put this down to some kind of blitz spirit or some real experience of carrying out duties under fire. So maybe, as mentioned earlier, it does have some connection to America's history as an adventurous people who went out to tame the Wild West, the, the pioneer spirit and all that. Maybe it's the determination that, because of who our forefathers were, we are not going to be cowed by a war. We're at least going to get the mail through. The war won't stop us. But if we're talking nuclear war, (laughs) then yes, it would. So the civil defence planners at the post office might have felt tough and brave and efficient. But what's the point if none of their planning would stand up in reality. But um, as with so much civil defence planning, uh, there will never be a day of reckoning. The planners are not going to be called back to Congress uh, five, six, maybe seven years after the nuclear holocaust to 
explain themselves, to look at precisely why their plan failed and how they might improve it for next time. So really, they could put whatever they wanted in that plan, as long as they could weather the ridicule, because they're never going to be called to account when it all goes wrong. So I hope you've enjoyed that look at uh, Form 809 of the US Postal Service, where you can let them know of your post-nuclear holocaust address. And thank you again, of course, to John Lane, who has sent me this and other civil defence goodies. We will surely look at them, the rest of the contents, in future episodes. And I want to thank all my patrons who have been patient with me. Um, I took a break, of course, over Christmas just to, well, just to rest, just to have a break from nuclear war and also to be able to give myself completely to finishing the book and to editing, editing, editing. And now I need to finalise all the photographs that are going in the book and get all the necessary permissions, etc. So I needed a break, I needed some time away from the podcast and my patrons have stuck with me, continuing to support me each month. So so thank you to every single one of you. The podcast is now back and we'll be back to weekly episodes. And I want to thank the two people who left me uh, a tip over Christmas by PayPal. That was uh, a nice surprise to log on to my email and in amongst all the all the junk mail and all the boring stuff and all the life admin, two little uh, PayPal emails with a with a nice um, tip there from both of you. So thank you to both of you for that. That was appreciated. As was uh, the Amazon voucher sent to me by my patron Kevin. And I've spent that, of course, on nuclear war books. One of them's arriving from America uh, within the next couple of weeks, I hope, about nuclear war films. So hopefully we'll get some good um, podcast material out of that. So I'm very grateful to you all for for helping me, for supporting me, for having patience with me while I stepped away from this for a while over Christmas. And um, anyone who is a member of my Patreon, if you wondered why I'd gone quiet over Christmas, uh, let me remind you that I always keep you updated on my Patreon uh, website. Every now and then I'll put up um, updates uh, or just, you know, chatter, photographs, etc. You might have ticked a box when you signed up saying don't send me any notifications I know that's what I do whenever I sign up to anything the first thing I do is look for that box and click I don't want to hear from you um, but I would never just go silent uh, not do anything if there is ever a period where for some reason the podcast isn't appearing regularly if you want to of course check the Patreon website there are always updates there and there is always chat there comments being left there I would never just go quiet on you for no reason So I hope you're glad the podcast is back. I'm certainly glad to be back at my desk and going through all my nuclear war archives. And I'll be back on Monday with the next episode and we will be weekly from this point on. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. I'm on Facebook under Nuclear Britain and you can pre-order my book just now, which is Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War by me, Julie McDowell. And to everyone who has pre-ordered, uh, I thank you. Um, it's available uh, hardback, ebook, or audiobook. Um, the audiobook hasn't been recorded yet. I'm going to do that uh, in mid-February. They've got me a studio in Glasgow, thankfully, so I don't need to go trekking up and down the country. And that will be recorded over three days in mid-February. But you can obviously pre-order that just now if you want. So thank you all, and I'll be back on Monday. <laughs>